Hey, folks, welcome to Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean. Carlos, um, it is that time of the year, believe it or not. I mean, I know the lines have started up, but the real uh, football is about to start in Ann Arbor. Oh, the blue wall. You're, think, already, you're confirming the blue wall to everybody. We uh, hate Michigan State. Can't even say their name. The real football is starting in Ann Arbor. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We, we will get, you know what? We lost half for of you, our listener, for, by the way. Listen, listener. Uh, we actually, and this is no offense to Michael Cohn, who's our guest today, who covers uh, Michigan uh, football and basketball for the free press. And he's really, really good at it. One of the best analytical football guys uh anywhere that you'll find and we're 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 really great it's it's well we're grateful to have him but we did listener reach out to the michigan state folks first we're trying to avoid the blue wall talk right we wanted to and we wanted to mix it up and we were going to have michael on next week but um hey you know the michigan state people were just too good for us carlos (laughs) i think uh i think graham couch is on perpetual vacation uh good time to take it uh during fall camp and I don't. I don't know if I've uh, seen Chris Solari uh, in more than a year, so I'm not. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, they're maybe they're too big for their britches now. You know, Tuck coming and they're all buying into the hype. So, uh, you know, Coach Harbaugh is very you know understated, down to earth. You know, and and that's how the beat writers are who cover him. No, 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 for sure. So we, we thought we'd bring in Michael and we would talk about the most important, significant <laughs> football team. <laughs> Anywhere in the world that's talking about, ever existed. Yeah, Big Ten powerhouse UCLA. Is that what <laughs> how how does that sound? Okay. Yeah, or or I thought you were going to say you. I USC. love it because UCLA, UCLA. We could talk to is Michael about like that. the that stepchild actually, yeah. of you know college football, and and it's it's beautiful because it's reversed in basketball. UCLA is like the king in basketball. Everybody cares, and then nobody cares about USC basketball. So it'll be a fun time when you're you're just looking out. You're looking to get all your Marriott points and Delta miles and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Michael, how are you? Let's ask no, Michael. Not how really. how, how you excited know, are you on, to, we, uh, to go out we, to LA and get all those? We're not going to travel. We're not going to travel at all. We're not going to travel at all. Yeah, the uh, the addition of two West Coast schools would not be bad for midwinter trips for basketball. I'll tell you that much. I would not be opposed to some 85, 90 degrees and sunshine uh, in between the uh, snow and ice uh, here in Ann Arbor. That's for sure. So here's my first question to you, Michael. How can you justify? And, and, and I'm sorry, listener, you can't see this, but. How can you justify Michael wearing a T-shirt with a soccer ball on it when we know how much Carlos despises soccer? Well, I thought we were going to talk football. I was confused. I'm not talking about <laughs> soccer on this. I mean, uh, you know, it'd be fun to talk about soccer. Carlos would love that, right, Carlos? Please, please, just I, I don't care if he's a soccer fan. Just please don't tell me you root for the U.S. men's national soccer team. I mean, in don't a World Cup, of course. Why not? Oh. Yeah. Oh well, if they, if Why they do you make hate it to America? the World Cup, yeah, if they qualify. Why do you hate America? Are they going to qualify this year? We, yes, they, they'll qualify. <laughs> okay. All right. And by the way, Michael, Michael just doesn't play soccer. He coaches soccer, Carlos. I think we've established that. You right? know what? No, no, no. That's okay because he's real. He's a real soccer nut. He's a soccer head because a lot of people are posers. They just think soccer's cool. It's too cool. Like I'm beyond the American sports. I understand you know, footy and all this stuff, right? So, no, no, no. But if Michael coaches it and he, you know, I, I respect that, Sean. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that. All right, Michael, let's uh, let's dig into these Wolverines. The uh, the fall camp just started recently within the last, what, several days or so, I think. And um, what are they, three or four practices, four or five practices, something like that. Let's uh, let's just, let's let's get right in with the, with the thing everybody wants to know about. Tell us who's going to start at quarterback. <laughs> Uh, for the opener, I put my money on Cade McNamara. Um, you know, I don't know if it'll be that way all season, but for the opener, I'd be pretty surprised. Um, you know, for those who, who might not be too familiar with how the fall camp works here, um, Jim Harbaugh has it completely closed to both the media and fans, which means nobody sees a snap of what happens other than people involved in the program. So um, all we can do is kind of make our, our best inferences and, and educated guesses about what's going on based on the comments people make or any sources that we have that have actually watched stuff. But people uh, in my position or obviously just general fans have not seen a, uh, a single snap of football and they won't until the opener. Um, against Colorado State. So the reason why I say Cade McNamara is because, you know, when we talked to uh, co-offensive coordinator Matt Weiss over the weekend, who's also the quarterback's coach, he was asked about the competition. And the first way that he described it was that Cade McNamara is playing at a really high level. Those were his words, really high level. And that JJ is getting back into it after his injury kept him out in the spring. So to me, that was kind of like, you know, 
clue number one, breadcrumb number one, that if one of them is playing at a really high level and the other one is being described as working his way back in, that kind of tells you um, where that is. And then the second thing was he said that now that last season is over, they can be a little bit more open and a little bit more transparent about what their goals were in terms of the way they used JJ last year. And of course there was the obvious, they wanted to get him experience. They wanted to make sure their backup was reliable. But the thing that jumped out to me was he said that the reason they started using JJ as a runner during big 10 games was because that would allow them to manipulate the defense once that was on film for a few weeks in a row. And it would simplify things because teams weren't going to throw crazy blitzes or crazy coverages at him if they knew he was more than likely just going to run the ball. So I started thinking, okay, well, if the coaches think that they need to manipulate the defense to make it as simple as possible for him, that kind of gives you an idea of where they thought he was in terms of his his poise in the pocket, his ability to read defenses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you put these little breadcrumbs together over time. And I just think it would be hard for Cade McNamara not to be the starter um, in week one. Now, again, will it stay that way all season? I don't know. There's probably going to be a timeshare from the very beginning if Cade is in fact the starter, but that's where my money would be, would be Cade McNamara for Colorado State. And how is it that, I mean, you know, you have... You know, it just seems a little bit, I know, I know we, we watched the season last year and we saw some McCarthy, we saw McNamara, obviously, you know, McCarthy seems to be the guy with the more, with more arm talent and all that stuff. But, but it's just crazy almost to think, you know, if you're not, you know, hooked into that program, watching every single snap that a guy who took you to the college football playoff, you know, has a smarts. I think Sean wrote, you know, one of his 12 columns about Michigan this fall or this spring about how good Caden McNamara is and analyzing things, breaking things down, you know, the split second decision making, all that stuff. How do you not go with this guy? You know, is it is it something that they're it's a respect thing for McCarthy that we're we're acting like we're giving him a chance, but how do you not roll with the guy at least to start the season and give him that boost of confidence and say, listen, you, you know, you took us all the way last year, you know, for the, for the majority of it, you know, we're going to, it's ride or die with you for a while until something significant happens, but how do you not, how do you displace him? I guess, you know, how, how can there even be any thought about that? So I think there's kind of two things to unpack there. First would be why um, Matt Weiss and, and Jim Harbaugh really like Kate McNamara. And part of it, I think is that Matt Weiss in particular is obsessed with process and details and, doing things exactly the right way, executing the offense as it's supposed to be executed time after time after time and establishing that reliability and just making sure that it's kind of like this machine. And that is more Cade McNamara than it is J.J. McCarthy. Cade is going to go out there and run the offense the way it's supposed to be run all the time because he doesn't necessarily have the crazy scramble ability and, um, you know, second reaction throws that um, that J.J. McCarthy has. So then you kind of think, all right, well, if that's the reason why they, they like him, then to your question, why would it ever be a situation where McCarthy goes in? And, you know, coaches will deny this, but it's a very real thing in that they have to think about the perception of J.J. McCarthy sitting on the bench from a recruiting standpoint. If you're a five-star quarterback and you're brought in and you basically are a bit part player your whole freshman year, and then your second season, you can't beat out a kid who was a four-star kid from uh, Nevada who's undersized, who doesn't necessarily have what many people would consider a strong NFL potential. Um, If you can't beat him out, what does that say about you? Plus, our colleague Reiner Saban wrote a story last year that basically explored what the coaches um, had been saying to recruits at like the receiver and running back position about what the offense would look like in the coming years. And essentially they were pitching JJ McCarthy as the starting quarterback, that it was going to be wide open, that they were going to throw the ball all over the place, you know, all these types of things. So, you know, again, if you tell all these receivers that the plan is for JJ to be the quarterback and he's going to sling it all over the field. And then all of a sudden JJ sitting on the bench again, well, a, it's a question of, is JJ really that good or B, you know, can we trust the coaches that, you know, what they said about what the future is going to look like is actually true. So I think there's a lot of things to take into account there and no coach is ever going to publicly acknowledge the second part of that, because that would be admitting that, not 100% of their focus is on winning right now and what will get them to win now. It's on other parts of the program and and what goes into it. But, you know, all of those things matter. And again, if you're a five-star quarterback and you think you want to play early in your career and you see JJ sitting as a freshman and sitting again, mostly as a sophomore, maybe you don't want to go to Michigan. I don't know. There's all these different factors that come into it, but I agree with you. I think it's hard to go away from Cade McNamara 
And, you know, the tricky part, too, is Michigan's schedule because it's so easy and the non-conference is so pathetic that either guy is going to win both of those three games. And either guy is probably going to win most of the Big Ten games. So it's like, how do you figure out which one you want to roll with if they're both capable of winning? It's really dicey. But I agree with you. It's got to be Cade at least to start the season. I think it would be really disrespectful to Cade um, if he wasn't the number one guy at the beginning of the season just because of all he did for the program last year. So, so basically, this sounds really familiar from something that happened in 1999 in Michigan. So what you're basically guaranteeing us and the listener is that Cade McNamara is going to win seven Super Bowls, basically, right, as a low draft pick in the NFL. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. I mean, he does have, yeah. uh, he does yeah. have a uh, NIL deal uh, with that individual you're mentioning. So maybe that's the connection. That's funny. You know, it's, there's been talk of that, obviously. I mean, jokey talk, especially among fans. Michael, but the other thing I would like to uh, point out here about the difference between the two of them, and you're and you're so right to mention the the pre the, the non conference schedule, and it's just the state of the Big Ten. And you never know who can sneak up in the Big Ten from year to year. Um, I mean, you know, we saw last year with Michigan State with Kenneth Walker kind of coming out of nowhere. Um, but what we saw, what you and I saw, Michael down in in Miami or Fort Lauderdale, wherever that stadium is, exactly. Um, that is uh, is is what they have to think about, right? The difference in speed and size. And even maybe a little bit of sophistication in terms of the the strategy of the programs that are at that level, right? I mean, they were good enough to get to the college football playoff, I would argue, and you probably would too, Michael. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think we talked about this. Ohio State was a little bit down last year, especially defensively. And, um, you know, so they, they, they caught some breaks in, in the way things unfolded. But then you get to those top two, three, four teams, and there's still a decent gap there. And McNamara, as you and I saw, was overwhelmed in that game, right? Now, that wasn't all his fault. That defensive line was as good as we've seen in college football uh, in, in the last several years. But there's often a defensive line out there like that, right? So to me, that's that's the other part of this, is they know what McCarthy potentially could bring, and um, and they, and they, they got to somehow get him there. Because, I mean, maybe McNamara improves enough because is is we use all these words like savvy and, and and the way he reads things. Tom Brady can throw the football, right? Cade McNamara does not throw the football like Tom Brady did when he was at Michigan twenty two years ago or whatever it was twenty three years ago. So uh, you know, to me, that's where he's got to improve the most. He's got all those other intangibles. I'm curious what you think about his last step to be able to handle and make some plays against a team like Georgia if Michigan is fortunate enough to get to get to a game like that again. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point you bring up because I think maybe one of the most awkward moments that I saw last season was after the Georgia game when we're on Zoom for a press conference and it's uh, it's Jim Harbaugh in the middle and as he's facing us, we see to, his, or to our left, Cade McNamara, and to the right I think was Josh Ross maybe. But anyway, Harbaugh makes a comment um, uh, or was asked a question about the quarterback competition going into next season. And his answer basically was that we felt, you know, JJ's athleticism and mobility and stuff gave us more of a chance in the second half, given, you know, some of the issues we were having along the offensive line, et cetera, et cetera. And Cade just kind of had to sit there and basically hear his coach say that this other guy brings more athleticism, brings more mobility, is more dynamic, et cetera. And it was just this very awkward thing where, you know, I don't even know if Cade really heard it. He could have been zoned out because the loss was so fresh and all that. But it was very striking to, to hear Harbaugh say that with Cade sitting right next to him. And there are some issues with Cade. I mean, look, he's, he's undersized in terms of height. So there were issues at times last year, as you remember, Sean, with passes getting batted down at the line of scrimmage. Um, I had a uh, former division one coach who is now retired, but was not retired when Cade was coming out of high school and, and had been involved in uh, with a program that recruited Cade tell me that he was shocked that one of the things that Harbaugh hasn't done in Cade's time here is fix his mechanics. He thinks his throwing mechanics are a mess, particularly with, um, his, his arm angle and things. And that's why we saw so many short and intermediate passes, you know, go awry at times last year. Um, so there are some issues with it, but Cade is an unbelievable leader and he has basically every junior and senior and upperclassman in that locker room, a million percent behind him because of the way he, the way he prepares, uh, the toughness that he has. I mean, Cade can take a shot. Um, he's a guy that can get hit and will get back up and play. And so basically every intangible that goes along with the quarterback battle, uh, Cade is going to knock it through the roof. Now, that doesn't mean J.J. doesn't have certain intangibles, too. He could be a great leader as well. 
but Cade, you know, is is going to get an A plus in all those categories. So it's it's really tough to to see how he could make enough of a jump, Cade, that is, to beat a team like Georgia. But again, I don't think it's going to matter that much from the quarterback position because I don't think Michigan's offensive line is going to be good enough to contend against those kinds of teams. So it's kind of, you know, irrelevant. I think if Michigan were to get back to the college football playoff, I don't see their offensive line being good enough. You know, they won the Joe Moore award last year and then were absolutely embarrassed by Georgia. So were they the best offensive line in the country? I mean, they have the award that says so, but there were other offensive lines that held up way better against Georgia than Michigan's did throughout the season. So what does that tell you? I just don't think the offensive line faced the kind of competition that they will face in Georgia or they would face if they made the college football playoff again. So it's a great offensive line by Big Ten standards in a year when Ohio State did not have the pure pass rushers that they've had in years past. But I don't think it was a great offensive line when you compare it to SEC talent. So that's what McNamara would be playing behind. I don't see him making a big enough jump to overcome some of those issues on the offensive line. And I also don't think he can overcome some of his physical and mechanical shortcomings as a quarterback. So again, what's the ceiling? Is the ceiling higher with JJ or is it higher with Cade? Um, but it all comes back to that schedule where I think Cade can probably win him 10 games minimum and JJ probably could too, because there's not a lot of great teams in the big 10 this year. All right. Oh, oh, oh one sec, Carlos, you're right. So it, it, and there's, I don't want to say politics. That's not the right word, but you, your point about the team being behind him, behind him especially the upper, of the upper class one, is a really important one because, you know, that matters. I mean, the fan base, whatever. I mean, it's, you know, they're going to want, they always want the backup quarterback and they fall in love with a guy with a big arm and that's McCarthy and scrambles better, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it is interesting to think about because you and I watched it. You can say, okay, fine, Georgia pulled their starters at a certain point. But McCarthy had a couple of moments in that game where you thought, yeah, right? That's that's um against that team, against that level of competition. He he actually had a couple of those moments. So and obviously the coaches know that they see that to your point about the zoom, uh the zoom press conference right afterwards with that kind of awkward moment. I remember that well. So it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting. I will say this Harbaugh in the past has shown he's not afraid to make a change. Right. I mean, I think these days coaching staffs have to, and I'm curious what you think, Michael. Like the most famous recent example is what Nick Saban did when he sat Jalen Hurts, who, you know, is in the NFL now, right? And a, a, a great, great college player. And he sat him in the title game because he didn't throw the ball that well against Georgia, uh, ironically enough, and another great defense. But, and they brought in Tagliavoa. So that was, um, you know, I, I think Harbaugh understands that he might have to do that at some point. And I'd, I'd just like to add one more thing to the, the quarterback competition as well. This would certainly be a smaller factor than some of the other things we've talked about, but it hasn't really been discussed a lot. And it was kind of something that popped into my head and I wrote it in a story um, that's on the free press website as of Tuesday morning. So by the time people are hearing this, it's, it's already out, but I don't think it's crazy to think that Ronnie Bell could be a small factor in the quarterback competition. Look, Ronnie Bell is coming back from a torn ACL. He wants to be the number one wide receiver. Michigan wants him to be the number one wide receiver. He has three years of banked reps with Cade McNamara and chemistry developing between the two of them. And JJ McCarthy basically had a training camp and like three days of real practice before Ronnie Bell tore his ACL in the opener. So if Ronnie Bell is the number one wideout and it takes him and JJ some time to get on the same page, but Cade and Ronnie just, you know, flip the switch just like nothing has happened and they're lighting it up and the offense looks great because they've been together for three years and they've talked through all different scenarios and concepts and things. I don't think it's, I don't think it's crazy to think that that would be a small factor in the quarterback competition. Is it a big factor? Absolutely not. But if Cade and Ronnie have really, really good chemistry, like they showed the potential to have in that opener against Western Michigan uh, last year. That could be something to watch. In terms of Harbaugh's decision, I agree with you. He showed that he's not afraid to make that choice. I think the, the, the tough part about this is what does Cade have to do or not do to get pulled? Because if the answer is just win football games, I think he's shown that he's good enough to get that done this year against this type of a schedule that they have. But if the criteria that Harbaugh and Matt Weiss and Sharon Moore are going to set is 300 yards passing in a game, well, that doesn't necessarily play to McNamara's strength. So I think it's a question of what Harbaugh and his staff believe is the criteria 
or the, the, the threshold that McNamara has to reach in order to keep the job, because I think he's good enough to win games, but is he good enough to win the way they want him to win or with as, as many style points? I don't know. It's, it's tough to forecast, but that's kind of what I think it'll come down to because Cade's going to win games. He's not going to lose a bunch of games. So it's not like he's going to play so poorly that they're going to have to yank him. It's, it's got to be that he's not doing something as well as they want, as opposed to him doing something badly. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, I wasn't on the zoom call or anything, but I can, I can pretty much guarantee you if Harbaugh was talking about Cade's uh, McNamara shortcomings and he was right there, I'm pretty sure he heard it and was very aware of it. I mean, like when, when we have guests on and they mentioned that Sean's much better looking than I am, then I, you know, I hear it, of course, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm zoomed. I'm, I know, but that's what Cade's thinking too, is it's not true. I'm just as athletic as JJ and blah, blah, blah. Everybody wants to believe this best about themselves but i mean i mean you're 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 i don't know if you went to law school michael or you're thinking about it but you're definitely making a great case for mcnamara because i think i think the approximate uh range you said of teammates being behind him was about a million percent so that's pretty high i think um and then you have you know and, and that's big in college football in any football right but that leadership and we just had that other team in east lansing and and you know mel tucker talking about how this team, and I think he was specifically mentioned, you know, kind of alluding to Peyton Thorne saying, this can't just be a coach-led team. Players have to take the initiative. And that's huge. You can't have a bunch of, you know, the longer you have coaches guiding 18, 19, 20-year-olds, you know, it, it, it's limiting. And if you have a leader like that, you have the incumbent. And I think the Ronnie Bell thing is a big deal, you know, because that offense has to work together. It's a it's different moving parts. And if you have that trust, even if you have a guy with, you know, better arm talent or whatever it might be, more diet dynamic, you know, playmaking ability. But if he can't, he doesn't have that chemistry with your number one wide receiver, you know, ostensibly your number one offensive threat, that's a problem, you know? So, so it, it makes so much sense, you know, right. He's the incumbent, all these different things, the leadership um, it would be. And I think you're, I mean, my, my guess on this would be like just about any football coach. What they want to see is move the offense. Don't lose games. Don't turn it over. Don't screw up. 300, 300 yards passing, you know, in college is going to be kind of tough, probably, unless you're playing the, you know, the cupcakes, but don't screw up. Don't, don't be a problem. Be a good soldier, run the offense as we tell you to run it. And you should be fine. And Kate's probably smart enough to think I can do that. I've done it before. I can do it. I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to take this team as far as we can go. And if, if McCarthy comes in at some point and lights it up, then you got, you know, a decision that Harbaugh has to make, right? Yeah, and, and I don't want to make it sound like there's nobody in the locker room behind J.J. I just think it's given the sort of nature of it where one of them is an upperclassman and one of them is a much younger guy, there's kind of just like a natural divide, right, where the freshmen and sophomores are the guys that either came in with J.J. or J.J. helped recruit once he committed to Michigan, whereas the juniors and seniors have been here with Cade for three, four years. So it's just kind of natural that the upperclassmen would, would view Cade as, quote, unquote, their guy. And the younger guys would be more accustomed and more used to, to JJ because that's who they came in with. Um, you know, again, I, I just kind of think it would be hard to, to pull a guy that got you to the Big Ten title game and then won the Big Ten title game. And basically, it wasn't a situation where, if, you know, think about the team that they played in Indianapolis and Iowa. Iowa got to Indianapolis in spite of their quarterback play because of all the interceptions, because of the inability to move the football, you know, all those types of things. Uh, Michigan made it to Indianapolis obviously on the strength of their running game, but just as big as the running attack. And Sean, I think you'll agree. We talked about this a number of times is just the fact that Cade did not throw interceptions. It wasn't until like what the sixth game or whatever it was at Nebraska that he threw his first interception of the season. And so if you can avoid turnovers, if you can run the offense efficiently, if you can be a leader, even if another guy is more talented than you, I just think it's hard to, to, yank that guy with, with everything that I just said. And, and I'm not trying to argue that Cade's a better player than JJ, any of that stuff. I just think that there are a lot of things that he does well that will result in successful things on the field. And that makes it hard to pull him. Uh, I, I do have one more thought, but we do need to, uh, on this, uh, this quarterback situation, but we do need to take a quick break. And I also realize the listeners are probably out there thinking, wait a second, there are 21 other positions on, uh, on this Michigan football team, right? And we need to get into them and talk a little bit more globally about what you think this team is going to be, how good they're going to be, all that sort of stuff, how they follow up last year overall. But uh, before we do that, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean. My name is Kerry Jr. The second. I'm a podcast producer and reporter with the Detroit Free Press, and now the host of Freep's new weekly podcast, On the Line. 
Our job is to understand the issues and the people that the issues affect in our state and region and tell the news. I want Detroiters, I want Michiganders, I want Metro Detroiters to hear themselves and maybe get a sense of peace in this podcast. Maybe not in the topics we're covering, but in the sense that we're the Detroit Free Press. And you can come here to know what's happening and trust that we're going to tell the truth, give you the facts, and do it authentically. We're going to give you the voices that are in those areas, whether it be in Owasso, whether it be in Petoskey, whether it be in Birmingham, Warren, Gross Point, Southwest Detroit. You know, we're going to give you what it sounds like to be there. So every Friday in your feed, wherever you get your podcast, when you press play, we want this podcast to sound like home. We want it to sound like Michigan. We want it to sound like Detroit. I think that's all I got. So let the journey begin. Welcome back to Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean. Uh, fellas, I have I have one last thought. I don't need the last word on this, but I did have one, not last thought, but one more thought about this. And it's something that Har- Jim Harbaugh said when he was in Indianapolis, and I was not there. I just saw this on the transcripts. Or maybe he's said this earlier in the spring. I, maybe maybe he did say it in the spring. Mike, Michael, you might want to correct me. But he, he talked about the percentage. There are metrics that measure you know, every drive and what, you know, that whether it ends up at points or how many first downs and his point in saying that he was talking about when McNamara is on the field, they measure just how he rates it that any rate he rated really, really well last year, obviously taking out Georgia. And I think that matters. And, and, and they, they see that with their eyes, like they, you know, whatever he can't do on a football field in terms of throws and scrambling, what they see is an offense that moves the ball when he's in the middle of it. And you and I saw that in the first press conference, Michael, when he walked in there and you, just the way he carried himself. And that's how he obviously is in the huddle. You're talking about his leadership. So they see that. And then Harbaugh was basically arguing, here are some numbers that back up what we're seeing. And it made me think of you, Carl's mentioned in the Brady, the Tom Brady, Drew Henson battle, you know, in 99 back under Lloyd Carr. It was similar. Then Henson had the bigger arm. He was a better scrambler, all that. But when Brady was on the field, the, the offense moved. Right. It, it, it just it just did. Now, again, we talked about McNamara not being Brady's talent, and I don't want to say that, but I'm just curious how much stock you put into that, Michael, just that idea of and the, the, them looking for numbers. And then they're just eye test their feel of what is happening when McNamara is on the field. Yeah, I think so. The, the number that you're referring to is what percentage of drives with McNamara on the field end up in the end zone and end up with points of any kind. And it's, it was right around or slightly over 50% last year, which is an extremely high number. And so that is kind of one of those thresholds that I talked about where if all of a sudden that number dips for Cade and it's down to 40% or 38% or whatever, then I think you could start to, to say, all right, this is a justifiable reason to make a switch. Um, but, you know, kind of spinning it forward a little bit, one of the biggest reasons that the offense moved so well last year was Hassan Haskins and the number of times he was able to pick up first downs, led the country in first downs with, I think, like 104, if I remember correctly. Um, and so, you know, I'm curious to see what their running game looks like because they obviously have two extremely dynamic players in Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards, but neither one of them runs with the same ferocity or power or tenacity that Hassan Haskins did between the tackles. And so if all of a sudden, all of those third and twos, third and threes, fourth and ones that Hassan Haskins picked up routinely last year start to become, you know, instead of maybe like a, an 80 or 90% conversion rate, maybe it's down to, you know, 60 or 70 with some of these smaller backs that are not necessarily power backs. Well, then how does that influence the drive success rate, because if Hassan's not moving the chains for you and getting you into the area where you can kick field goals or score touchdowns, then, you know, obviously the numbers are going to dip. So, you know, I think the, the idea that Michigan has two great running backs is true, but the idea that they also don't have somebody to replace Hassan Haskins can also be a valid point. And, and I think it is. And that's something I'm really curious to see, you know, sort of how it pans out. And I think that's why they've continued to cross train linebacker Kalel Mullings at running back. Now he was a running back and a linebacker in high school. So it's not like he's never carried the ball before, but he is 20 to 25 pounds heavier than Edwards or Corum and two inches taller, I think, than, than, um, than Edwards as well. And so, you know, basically they're trying to mold or see if they can mold another hammer to pick up these short yardage situations. So I don't think they'd be doing that if they felt that somebody in the running back room 
could fill the Hassan Haskins role in short yardage situations more uh, adroitly. Yeah. And that's, that, that's the thing that, I mean, you got to figure that, you know, if that number dips right on that, you know, conversion rate, or whatever, getting into the end zone and getting points or of some kind, they're going to, they're going to know that, right. They're going to take that with a grain of salt. Hey, we don't have Haskins anymore. That was a big reason, you know, but as long as he's, you know, my gut is as long as he's not screwing things up and it goes for either quarterback, you know, and th- this happens, you know, a little bit. We saw this a little bit with the Lions last year and Jared Goff as he wasn't the big problem. And they said it about Stafford for before that. He's not the problem, even though there were some picks. That's all that's all, you know, the circumstance matters. The context matters. Did, was it a bad pick or a good pick? Was it a tip? Was it a whatever? You know, did they have a running game? Did they not? Um, so you figured they have to, you know. And, and, you know, McNamara is going to have the same run game that McCarthy is going to have. So if you can't get those short yardage, you know, first downs, you know, McCarthy's maybe he could scramble a little bit better. Who knows? Maybe that's something that'll play into it. But uh, but yeah, that's interesting. Those those metrics. But it's also it's also the eye test and how they see it, you know, playing out on the field in that context. Yeah. And I think the, the point about the short yardage was more that if they can't pick up the the third and one, two, threes and fours running the ball that they're going to have to throw it on those downs. And I think that's where you could argue that JJ might be more effective than McNamara. If, if the volume of throws goes from 20 to 25 attempts a game to 25 to 30 attempts a game. Uh, but I'm really interested to see the, the other area uh, to watch, I think is, is the offensive line. I'm kind of glossing over wide receiver and tight end because I think that they're loaded at those positions and it's kind of, I think it's a safe assumption that they're going to be good in both of those areas. They have a, a number of guys who could potentially end up at the next level at both position, um, at both positions, excuse me, the offensive line They're They're trying to replace um, a center and Andrew Bastardis, who was very, very good last year, but they brought in one of the best centers in the country in Olu Oluwatimi from Virginia as a graduate transfer. So I think that will be largely fine. Uh, right tackle. Andrew Stuber was probably their best pass blocker uh, last year and they have Trente Jones, um, in there right now. Um, nobody has really seen Trente Jones outside of the spring game. All reports are that he's playing well and things are going great. But again, you know, nobody knows if that's true, except the people who have actually been out there at practice. And, you know, one thing I'd like to just add about that is I see, you know, fans or, or you know, certain people um, that, you know, are around the program, they'll, they'll get really excited every time Harbaugh says, well, the wide receivers are this, or the tight ends are that, or the offensive line is this. And it's like, well, you got to remember that he might be saying that because it's true, because those players are all playing great in practice, but he also might be saying it because maybe that group is a little low on confidence and needs some motivation. If you hear the head coach praising you in public, well, maybe it pumps you up. Or maybe, you know, he says that Trente Jones is playing well because the guy behind him who's supposed to be competing with him is kind of down a little bit. and You want to light a fire under that guy. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, the longer you attend press conferences and things and the more you deal with these situations, the more you realize that just because they said it doesn't mean they intend the words that they say for what they mean. They can have other meanings or other goals or other purposes based on what they're trying to, to accomplish. So I always try and think about that when, when coaches say stuff like, are they saying that player X is really good because player X is actually good? Or is he maybe down on himself a little bit and they're trying to pump him up or just, are they trying to get, you know, whatever the case may be, there's those things to think about, but getting back to the offensive line, I do think they have kind of like half a problem a little bit at guard. You know, I, I, I've seen a lot of people say that, you know, Trevor Keegan and Zach Sinter played really well last year. And, and I just don't think the numbers back that up at all. I think guard was the weak point on the offensive line last year, left tackle center and right tackle were definitely the strongest areas. You know, Zach Zinner, I thought, you know, going into the season, Josh Gaddis said he was their best offensive player, period, regardless of position. And I think, you know, he, he very much failed to live up to that billing. Um, and then Trevor Keegan, you know, I thought was the weakest of the five offensive linemen. So, you know, I understand that players can improve. They can get stronger, faster, better, all that kind of stuff. But based on, you know, what we saw last year, I, I think if you had to identify a problem on the offense, and I use problem loosely because I do think this offense is going to be very good, but guard would be the the area that I would just be a little bit nervous based on some of the things uh, that played out last season. Well, you're, you're hearing, it, hearing it first on Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean. Michael Cohen is saying uh, coaches sometimes have ulterior motives and don't always tell the truth. Um, I haven't heard that, Sean. It's, it's kind of news to me. But, um, but let me ask you, I mean, Michael, I know covering Michigan and as you mentioned, close practices and there's got to be there's got to be a challenge you know, uh, to cover this team, you know, a lot of, a uh, lot of eyes on it, a lot of attention, a lot of scrutiny. 
on the program, on the people who cover the program. Um, what's it like? T- tell us about Harbaugh, um, especially coming off last season with that uh, just incredible, crazy season with getting to the college football playoff, the dalliance with, with the Vikings, all this stuff. What's it like to cover him specifically on a day-to-day basis, or not day-to-day necessarily, but often, you know, throughout the spring, throughout the, here comes the summer, throughout the season. What, what's he like to deal with? Do you, do you feel he plays head games? Is he kind of a straight shooter? What, I mean, what's your general perception of him? Well, the thing is, we, we don't really have to cover him that often because he barely speaks to the media. You know, he spoke after the season ended. He didn't speak again until spring practice. He spoke once, but I think I was covering basketball for the NCAA tournament, so I wasn't there for that. Um, he There's this new pattern where the athletic department trots people out on their podcast and uses that as a way to control the message that gets out there about who speaks and when they speak and all that stuff. So Harbaugh has made a couple of appearances on the athletic department's podcast, but that's a situation where he's not facing critical questions. Um, he has the ability to, to shape those interviews in exactly the way he wants and come across any way that he wants. So in terms of covering him, I would say the biggest challenge is trying to figure out what he's like or what he's thinking or what he's doing without really getting the type of daily insight that you would have if he was an NFL head coach, uh, for example, because, you know, this is something that probably a lot of readers may not know and and justifiably, it's not your business to to know this. It's our business as journalists, but in the NFL, a coach has to talk Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. There's usually only one day, maybe two days a week that they don't speak to the media. Well, during the season, we hear from Harbaugh on a Monday at noon, and then we hear from Harbaugh again on Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening, whenever the game ends, and that's it. And so the rest of the time we're hearing from players or assistant coaches or whoever they're willing to bring out to chat with us. So what kind of guy is, is Harbaugh? It's, it's hard to say because, you know, all you can go by is what, what people tell you and, and what recruits tell you or what other coaches, you know, say if they've crossed paths with him on the recruiting trail. Um, it, I would say he's, he's very, I think the, the refusal to open practice in any way, shape or form, um, smacks of of paranoia to a degree. I I don't think football is as, I don't think football needs to be kept under lock and key as much as some people think it needs to be kept under lock and key. I mean, you know, there's a coach in the big 10. One of the writers that covers that team went to school with me and I saw him at big 10 media days in Indianapolis, 100% of his practices are open every single minute, every single rep start to finish. And, you know, it, the understanding is just that the reporters know that they can watch, they can take notes, they can observe all that stuff. But anything about position battles or new formations, crazy stuff like that, you know, can't be used until it's been seen on the field in a game. And so there's obviously trust going both ways in that situation where the coach has to trust the writers enough to where they're not going to burn him. And the writers have to trust the coach enough to where he's going to continue to let them in and things like that. You know, I know there's also other coaches in the Big Ten, I can think of one in particular who, in addition to talking to the media once a week early in the week, has a conference call later in the week where everything is on background and off the record. So if uh, writers want to ask about this guy or this guy's study habits or whatever, you know, he'll tell you, but you can't use it in terms of quoting him for a story. So there's all different ways to foster relationships with the media if a coach is really interested in doing so. And Harbaugh just isn't interested in doing so. Um, nobody says he has to, so he doesn't. But there certainly are benefits, I think, obviously, from my position, there's benefits as a writer, but I think there are ways to benefit the program, too, if the head coach is more visible, is willing to engage more and sort of, you know, make things a little bit more transparent. Um, But that's just not the way Harbaugh wants to operate. So we are kept at an arm's length. We don't get to choose which players we speak to after a game or during the week unless we make special requests. We don't get to pick which offensive coaches or defensive coaches we speak to. It's all decided by the athletic department and dictated by the athletic department because they try and shape things as best they can uh, based on whatever narratives they do or don't want out there. No, and to me, they're doing them a disservice, the the, the student athletes, uh, in, in, a, in a sense. You know, <clears throat> I think you and I have talked about this before, Michael. I know Carlos and I have a Tom Izzo opens his locker room up, and he's not the only coach that does that, precisely because he knows there are a lot of kids on the team that have aspirations to go play professional ball somewhere. And that's part of being a, a, a pro, right? So if they're at a university, you learn, you're there to learn how the world works, and that's part of it. You know, maybe you could argue, okay, the Michigan players go off and they do fine and the, you know, whatever. And and I understand that, but I, I'll say this: I, you know, there was there's another coach in the Big Ten who opens his practices up some, who has said 
privately that um, football's not as complicated as we like to make it be. You either have the players or you don't. And that reminds me of when I remember when USC and Michigan played in the Rose Bowl back in 2004 or five, somewhere in there. And USC was open. Their practices were open. Now they had Reggie Bush and Matt Leinart, and, you know, they had studs at almost every position, right? But he didn't care. Pete Carroll, right? I mean, he's like, hey, come watch, come see. Maybe he had a similar arrangement. What, what you're talking about with the other Big Ten coach. That's the thing that really gets me. And I don't want to completely sidetrack this podcast here, but. I understand there's a lot going on. It, football is complex, yes, and there's a, there's a lot of people in a small space. But to me, that's what makes it complex. It's not they're not state secrets. It's not so complicated. Michigan State used to have a defensive coordinator that say, "Well, I'd tell you, but you wouldn't understand it." Right? There's a, there's a built-in condescension there that's that's ridiculous. All, and if they and if they they could just explain it. I don't. I'm not saying Harbaugh is entirely like that. I think you're right, Michael. There's a level of paranoia and just not wanting to deal with it. Right? Just don't want the distraction. I, I think that's as it as much as anything else. Yeah, but more than more than that, you know that you know, Sean, that Woody Hayes has a camera planted in one of those trees near near the practice field, and they're spying on Michigan. They're just waiting to pounce. Right? I mean. It, it it is stupid. I mean, it's dumb to be that paranoid at this point. I mean, it's it's, but you know, like Michael says. I mean, you know, and maybe that's a product of being, you know, a Bo Beckler uh, prodigy or whatever. It's a product of that school. A product of that school during the Bo time, right? Is he thought the same way? And he and Bo, he and Woody, you know. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of old schoolness to Harbaugh in that way, right? I just think it's the university at large too. I'm curious. I know Michael, you haven't been here that long, but. Just the way they conduct themselves. I mean, the, the, you know, trying to get the file for FOIA is a Freedom of Information Act documents or documents under the Freedom of Information yeah, Act. Yeah, Michigan it's State's really, the same, though. No, no, state is the same. You're right. And it's, and it's frustrating, not just the journals, but it should be for the public because these are public institutions that fight tooth and nail to keep any kind of information, whether it's football or anything else. And it's just they act like corporations that way. And it's, uh, you know, it is a business, uh, obviously. But uh, and I'm not sure how we went down this road. Sorry, Michael. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, you're it was me but, yeah before like before we let you, uh, before we let you go michael can can you talk a little bit about um your expectations for this defense we haven't talked about the defense at all and then they're just overall for this team i i think their uh preseason ranking is that they're in the top 10 again right so there's at least some expectation out there probably just because of what they did last year and the brand name on the, on the helmet or the jersey but what are your thoughts yeah the defense is going to be very interesting to watch because it's it got a lot of new parts. It has a new coordinator, but it's essentially the same schematically. They brought in Jesse Minter because of his familiarity uh, with the defense that Mike McDonald ran. Both of them had spent time with the Ravens. They were trained and indoctrinated on the same philosophies and all those types of things. So um, the reason, you know, a huge reason why Jesse Minter got the job is because Harbaugh wanted to maintain some semblance of continuity after the new defensive system worked so well last season. Uh, obviously, the biggest question is that edge rusher, you know, who steps up for Aiden Hutchinson and David Ojabo? Um, you know, again, Harbaugh the, over the last couple of weeks has said a, a few different times and in a few different ways that he thinks this defense can be better than last year's defense because he's been part of groups where the, the, the phrase he keeps using is that the no star defense can be better than the defense that has star players. Again, maybe he does truly believe that. Maybe he thinks this defense can be better. Or, you know, again, going back to what I said earlier about coaches maybe having different motives, what is he supposed to say? Is he supposed to say that this defense is going to be worse than last year and get the players down on themselves? Or is he supposed to, you know, say that he thinks they can be better so that they keep trying really hard and that they have confidence in themselves and all those types of things? So who knows exactly, you know, what he means when he says that and, and how much truth is behind it. But Basically, I think they're going to have to cycle through edge rushers because they don't have any dominant guys in terms of, you know, somebody who's going to line up every snap and basically win most or a good percentage of their one on one matchups. So Mike Morris is probably the biggest name right now. He was kind of the third guy last year. He's bigger uh, than Hutchinson and Ojabo physically. He's he's pretty monstrous. He's like 6'6", 270 pounds and every bit of it. Um, so he can move along the line. He can play with his hand down. He can play standing up and he'll probably do a little bit of both. Um, but that's kind of the area uh, to watch first and foremost is edge rusher. In terms of potential problem areas, kind of like I identified the guard position on offense, 
you know, inside linebacker, they might have a little bit of a problem. Um, Junior Colson is the number one, and, and he's a terrific player. And there are some people within the program who think he'll become a first-round pick eventually. So in terms of their, their number one guy, that's not a problem. They do have a, a kind of alpha type that can replace Josh Ross um, in terms of skill set. Now, leadership-wise, that's a, a separate question. Josh Ross was one of their, their best leaders on defense. But the second linebacker spot um, – is a little bit of a problem. And it was a problem last year for, for fans who remember as well, because at the beginning of the season, it was Josh Ross and Nakai Hill Green, but Nakai Hill Green was having significant problems in coverage and against any teams that ran uh, zone reads or quarterback option plays where the quarterback was a potential run threat. So Junior Colson took his spot and Junior finished the season. Now it's Junior Colson and then either Nakai Hill Green or Michael Barrett. Michael Barrett, some might remember as a holdover from the Don Brown era. He was that Viper player the last season under Don Brown, kind of that hybrid safety linebacker. But they don't have a lot of depth at inside linebacker, and, and that would be a little bit of a concern. Um, the secondary has a ton of talent and a ton of depth, but it's pretty young for the most part. Um, they do have two corners that are upperclassmen in terms of their actual academic standing. But, you know, most of them, you know, DJ Turner and Jamon Green are the two guys I'm talking about. They've only combined for like 20 starts and the majority of them came last season. And if you take out Jamon Green, that number gets really low because DJ Turner was only a part time uh, starter last year. But five star freshman Will Johnson is back there. He was the, the jewel of the most recent recruiting class. He's going to work his way into the starting lineup. They have three or four different guys they can choose from at safety. And then the guy replacing Dax Hill is a converted wide receiver, Mike Sanders still. So they don't have a ton of experience in the secondary, but they got a lot of athleticism and a lot of guys who were highly rated coming out of high school. So I'm curious to see how that holds up. But overall, I think it's a unit that can be good, not great, in my opinion. I'm not as sold that it can be better than last year's group because I just think there were so many examples. And, you know, like the Penn State game comes to mind, the Wisconsin game comes to mind where – even on situations where opposing offenses move the ball a little bit, maybe they pick up one or two first downs on a drive. There was always Ojabo or Hutchinson to, to get a key sack after, you know, the offense had gained 25 or 30 yards and stop them out of field goal range or a strip sack or things like that, that really turned the field um, and changed things, even in moments where the defense did give up some yardage. And I just don't know if they have those potential game changers this year. So I think it can be a good defense. I'm not convinced the way Harbaugh is that it can be a great defense, but certainly uh, he knows more about football than I do. So perhaps uh, it will turn out that way in the end. And then last quick question, uh, where do you think they'll, where do you think they'll end up? Um, I, I find it hard to, to identify a loss on their schedule prior to the showdown in Columbus around Thanksgiving. I, I guess you could argue that they might lose at Iowa, but Iowa's offense is kind of a mess. I guess you could argue that Penn state and Michigan state uh, in Ann Arbor are tough games. And, and I don't doubt that they will be close games, but I, I just kind of think Michigan wins those two. Um, so to me, it's, it's the game against Ohio state. And I look at what Ohio state has on offense this year. And I look at what Michigan has on defense without the ability to necessarily, at least right now, generate pressure on C.J. Stroud the way that they did last year um, and without Hassan Haskins to bully through the line of scrimmage like he did last year. I, I just kind of think Ohio State has a little bit more talent this year. Um, so I kind of see them at 10 and 2 at worst and probably 11 and 1 is, is what my my prediction would be if I had to make one. But that loss to Ohio State means they they don't go back to Indianapolis and, and they don't go to the college football playoff. But I could see him ending up in the Rose Bowl. Well, there you go, Carlos, the Rose Bowl. Well, either way, Sean has sand in his toes, so he's fine. He's happy. Well, I mean, I don't know. Who knows? We might be covering this remotely by then. Who knows? <laughs> <Right>. Easy, <laughs> easy. I know. It's a sore subject. Sore subject. <laughs> yeah, you, ne you never know. You never know what the future holds. Um, and who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe they'll knock off Ohio State again. Maybe they'll lose to – I don't know. The Michigan State, Michael, the Michigan State one's just tough, right? That's, a, that's a, so hard to, no doubt. to figure out. You know, and and it's often hard to figure out the week of the game. You know, you just kind of throw everything out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was my first taste of that rivalry last year, and that was probably one of the most exciting games of the season, right up there with Ohio State in terms of just pure entertainment value. Um, you know, again, Kenneth Walker was what really killed them last year, and, and as you kind of mentioned up top, you know, who knows if they can find a guy to replace him? Certainly, have they have some 
high impact transfers um, that are hoping to, to channel that. But, you know, if they don't have a Kenneth Walker and, and if their secondary is still struggling the way that it did last year, um, you know, I just kind of would give Michigan a little bit of an edge there. But, you know, as you kind of told me getting ready for that Michigan State game last year, that anytime those two teams play, you can kind of throw out the records. It doesn't really matter. Um, and, and so, you know, in that case, it, it's pretty much a toss up every year. Uh, but if you ask me to pick it, I, I would lean Michigan right now. No, I know that's a cliche to say toss out the record. I'm sorry about that. We, of course, de- we, we deal in cliches in this podcast a lot. But look, no, look it's, Michael, it's a valid point. <laughs> um, listen, thank you so much. We've uh, took taken way too much of your time. We look forward to your, your coverage. Um, by the way, I loved what you did, and I know this isn't necessarily fun to take Harbaugh off a podcast that's produced by the Athletic Department of the University of Michigan. But I loved that you took his quotes and then, put a little bullet and or not bullet, but a little colon and said, okay, here's what I think this quote means. I thought that was really clever. Um, you do stuff like that all season long. For those of you listening out there, th- th- there's no better, like I said, at the top of the show, there's no better analytical mind in football in our area. And I'm going to include Dave Burkett in that Carlos is great as, as Dave Burkett. Oh, is. oh, shots fired. Oh, I don't think right. I, I, think I don't Burkett's know if I can him. agree with that one. Dave Burkett is damn good at his job. No, Dave is, is the best at his job. And yeah, I'm just saying just in terms of uh, analyzing X's and o, you have a coach's mind, right? And you, and you write that way and you present it that way. You're a coach, you're a soccer coach. And it was Burkett. Burkett coaches. He coaches basketball. basketball. No, that's teams. true, and that's partly why both of you are all so good. But it's a pleasure. I'm texting him right it's now. It's a pleasure to read. It's uh, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for giving us your time, man. And we will see you soon. Yeah, thanks, fellas. I appreciate it. Looking forward to talking with you again soon. All right, we're going to take one more uh, quick break and come back with Carlos's favorite thing. We will uh, see you. And how long, Carlos? How long does how long do these 20 minutes for Anjanet's commercial? Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. They just keep adding, adding, adding. Okay. Hopefully it won't be that long. We'll be right back. Hello. I'm Phil Friend, the host and producer of Spartan Speak, a podcast collaboration between the Detroit Free Press and Lansing State Journal focusing on Michigan State sports. Each week, I'm joined by the OGs of the MSU podcasting game, free beat writer Chris Laurie and LSJ sports columnist Graham Couch as we discuss and dissect the latest sports news coming out of East Lansing. Not only is Spartan Speak one of, if not the longest-running MSU sports podcast out there, you won't find a show with two people as clued into the Spartans as Chris and Graham, each of whom have spent a decade-plus covering MSU and bring years of institutional knowledge and insight to the podcast. And once in a while, they'll let me throw out a take as well. Along with discussing the latest news, we'll break down the Spartans' last game in the hardwood and the gridiron. What went right? What went wrong? Jet sweep. Again? For both Mel Tucker and Tom Izzo, get you ready for the next game, make predictions, and so much more. We can also guarantee at least one reference to Kalamazoo every podcast. So if you haven't already, download, subscribe, and listen to Spartans Speak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or on your podcast app of choice. Welcome back to Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean. It's that time of the show. Um, uh, yes, it's time to end the show, and you're probably thankful for that. Uh, thank you for sticking with us for however long it's been. Uh, we have not mentioned. No, we did just mention Anjanette Delgado. Kind of um, late. Although kind of I, late. I don't. Yeah, I don't know that I want to keep mentioning Anjanette Delgado or anybody at the Free Press, frankly. But uh, just uh-huh. just we're get, you just got like two two. Uh, two road trips cut off your uh, your itinerary for the fall. Oh, yeah, 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 saying no, that. yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. We we love all these people, but it's our podcast and why do we continue to to uh, you know, kiss the ring? What's going on? You know what I mean? <laughs> Can't we just sink or swim on our own? They're called performance do, reviews, Sean. Do we have to have mom and dad save us? Do yes. we have to t- talk about what they've done? Yes. You haven't you yeah. apparently have you you've been getting really good performance reviews. They're better better than I have, apparently. I have not. I mean, I don't even know. I don't look at them. I've, oh, you're I, a big you're a big shot columnist. You do I know I uh I know I uh I know I I stink, so you know, <laughs> I don't need anybody to tell me that. All right. Do you want to go first? Or you want me to? Um I can go first if you want. Go ahead. So you can steal my favorite thing like you usually do. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, it's because you're much smarter, more clever. <laughs> All what right. is it? I, you got 30 seconds. What is it? I got 30 seconds. I got to, I got to read you something really quick, Sean. It's a, it's a, it's a lyric. It's part of a lyric through every turn. I'll be, I near won't back you. down. No, I'll come anytime you call. I'll catch you when you fall. I'll be guiding you. You have to believe we are magic. Nothing can stand in our way. You have to believe we are magic. Don't ever let your aim stray. Those words were sung 
by Olivia Newton-John, who sadly passed away, you know, just very recently at age eight, 73. Uh, she'd been dealing with breast cancer, but more importantly than all that, and that came from the, the song, of course, the number one hit in 1980, Magic, in the one of the worst all-time movies called Xanadu, um, which I still watch with the sound off sometimes. Um, and that's because Olivia Newton-John, Sean, was my first celebrity crush. Um, she might have been tied with Jacqueline Smith, actually. This is the 1970s when when young little Carlitos was running around and, and learning about the ways of the world. And Olivia Newton-John was, I don't know what you would have called her at that, like, like one of the biggest stars. If you put if you put all the big stars right now together, I don't know who would be Beyonce and and uh, I don't know who's out there, uh, Taylor Swift, and you put them all together, it would have been Olivia Newton-John, star of the screen in Greece, and she was just amazing. And um, I didn't really know what women were at that age. I was under 10, I'm sure, when she was a big star in the late 70s, but uh, I knew that she really had something special. She was she was magnetic. She had a great voice. She was... Um, uh, unfortunately, she didn't get to act in enough movies really to to, to stretch herself. But um, I was really sad to hear that she had passed away. Um, it's one of your one of your childhood heroes and and people you looked up to, and um, she was one of the first in my life. So um, all the best um, to her family, and um, sorry for their loss. That's uh, that's very thoughtful and uh, and sweet, Carlos. And those are words that we don't normally associate you <laughs> with you. Probably unfairly, though. It's, oh yeah, not fair. It's you. It's you. You're 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 casting me in a certain light, Sean. As a curmudgeon. no, I'm not. I'm, I'm a sensitive, caring guy. What do you? I've been reading the, the the reader comments and the Twitter comments for ten years, right? So it it starts to warp your brain about what people think. Well, about the ones you, you make like, as a in your burner, I'm like, on your burner. And, and I'm like, no, yeah, no, yeah. I'm like, no, you you know full well I'm talking about. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not the Carlos I know. But maybe it's just started to. Uh... <laughs> You're like, that's no, not that's... the Carlos I know. But maybe it is, and you just add some yeah. more fuel. No, to the fire. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't have any original thoughts. I never have. I mean, that implies that I ever had no. That's 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 very kind. It's funny you say that, and I'm not going to take your favorite thing, but I did last night late after um, I watched the first episode of a series on Apple TV called Blackbird, which is based on a true story about a, a young guy that gets busted for selling coke, I think, and goes into prison for gets a what's he do? He does a plea deal to get a you know four or five years. The judge ends up giving him ten. He gets kind of tricked by the prosecutor. And anyway, the FBI comes and offers him a deal to commute the sentence if he'll move to a maximum security where they hold serial killers and sociopaths in the worst way to get a confession about where somebody uh, it's based on a true story about where somebody's was buried. And in any case, I get done watching that. I'm like, it's dark. It's it's you know, sometimes you, you want a shower, like a metaphorical shower after that. You know what I mean? And I thought, you know, I want to go back and listen to some Olivia Newton-John. Because I, too, I, I thought the world of her back then, and she was a pop star. Taylor Swift's probably, probably pretty good, maybe not Beyonce. She wasn't, it's funny, because as big as she was, she wasn't necessarily influential. She was just kind of a, and, and I remember having a guilty pleasure for Let's Get Physical, the song itself, because, I, you know, the music, I didn't love the music then, but I sort of, it's like eating, uh, at, I don't know, Happy Hour at McApplebee's or whatever, whatever. Or a good bad movie, a Steven Seagal movie back in the nineties or whatever. But I listen to the music, Carlos. So I'm like, a lot of times you go back and you listen to something you haven't, and it'll take you right back. And it sort of did, but it, the music doesn't necessarily. And I hate to say this, but I'm just going to be honest, it doesn't hold up that well. But she was so kind, right? And such a there was such a spirit with her. And I think that's what people were feeling yesterday. I think it's, it, and it speaks to a certain time. And then she lived that way by all accounts, everything you read. And a lot of times you can read stuff and people are just speaking out of the side of their mouth, but you just got the sense it was true. And it was genuine with her that she was truly just a, a light for a lot of people for decade after decade after decade. And that's why I think we saw the morning that we did. Right. Yeah. You yeah, know? for sure. I think I saw something that, uh the day after her the announcement you know her her passing that uh something like seven out of the top 10 downloaded songs on itunes were her songs and and and, and they are they're not you know yeah music is changing everything but there's still something you know um pleasant and joyful and and about that 
those themes yeah, yeah like hopelessly in love with you some some of the the grease yeah. stuff holds up is, is still fun right it's, yeah. it's still fun some of the other poppy stuff and you it's funny you mentioned xanadu i used to i can remember watching that movie but uh no I, i'm with you man it, it it was it was sad whenever whenever somebody spreads that kind of goodwill we we feel it we feel it right yeah. to the larger culture we we feel it and i think a lot of people felt that yesterday of a certain age for sure my quick uh what what do we call this? My favorite thing. I love how oh, engaged you are. How much buy? This is like well, we've been doing this for like two years now. Yeah, no, like, it's just this? my memory. No, I was trying to say I'm, gonna, I'm I was trying to say I'm going to be quick. I mean, it's going to stay with music just just briefly. So I was at a, a family wedding over the weekend on Saturday, uh, a niece of mine, and um, she married. Uh, you know, they got married at this sort of public golf course, and it was really really hot. And um, it was outside, and they wanted to keep the ceremony brief anyway. And then the heat comes, and as you know, Carlos, and the humidity comes. And so they're like, okay. So the ceremony was eight minutes, maybe. That's I mean, my it was kind quick. of wedding, yeah. Yeah, it was great. You know, and they have the white chairs out on the grass and between the, um, and the, the, the aisle going back up. So they get married, and the, uh, the officiant who married them, who was great. She introduces, she says, okay, here's the, here's the couple. And they take a few steps back up the aisle of the grass, back up to the clubhouse. And this is a public course. It's not a fancy place at all. And, um, all of a sudden there, there was a DJ off to the side under a little canopy about three or four steps into the walk. It's real slow and traditional, right? The gate, all of a sudden Marvin Gaye's, uh, got, got to get it. I can't remember the name of the song, but, and they start dancing the Let's rest of the on. walk up. No, it wasn't. It was something much quicker than that. Okay. Get it up. Got to get it up. Something like that. I'm sorry for that. And and that was great. But the, but the best part to me, so they get in the ceremony, they take the pictures. The couple has their slow dance, right? First dance, traditional. The, the married couple has their dance. It's slow. Then the bride, my niece, dances with her father, who's my brother-in-law. And that's slow. And then the groom and the mom get out there to dance, right? And you're thinking, okay, that's going to be slow. Well, no, it's Booker T and the MG's Green Onions. And they <laughs> both. How can and you they, can't dance to that? No, they both went nuts individually. I mean, it was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. That was my favorite, favorite moment. It I hope, hope you video it was so just, I can see it. It was a surprise. It was great. And it was just, it was just a fun night, you know. And my niece is white, the groom is black. And so you had a mixing of different different things going on at the ceremony and and in the at the reception and it was just it was great it was it was really fun you know there were some people passing out because of the heat the air conditioning was broken the <laughs> broken in the clubhouse but watching my nephew-in-law now um who's not that much younger than i am it's part of a huge family and his mom danced to green onions you know for the traditional mom son dance was awesome oh that is cool that's yeah, a good one. That's one of your, my favorite yeah, of yeah. your favorite things. That was awesome. And she, I don't know how old she is. I'm sure she's in her mid late seventies, but she went, she went nuts. It was great. <laughs> it was great. So anyway, any last thoughts, Carlos? Um, I don't think so. Oh, we have next week, next week coming up. We can talk about hard knocks, the Detroit lions. Unfortunately, we'll be, we're we'll... recording this at a time right before it debuts. So we'll, we'll have plenty to talk about next week and the first preseason game. We will, and um, at some point in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get uh, Chris Alari and Graham Couch on, and, and we're just going to let them go and fight with each other. It'll be it'll be great. We'll never get them on. They're too. If big our for producer us. can, if our producer, I mean, you know, if we thank him every week. I'm not sure what for at this point. If we can't get Graham, <laughs> Graham and Chris on, well, we got to, You know, we were talking about this. We were all chatting about this, and there's that really cool movie or show series called The Offer about the making of The Godfather. It's all about how it was produced. And that's, I think, Andrew Hammond, our producer, has to start watching that to get tips from the guy who produced that and overcame all the hurdles and made it happen. Whether he had to threaten yeah. people and lie Pick it up, and Andrew, steal, is what he's saying. he made it happen. Right, right, Carlos? Pick it up, Andrew. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. And we're not going to mention Anjanette Delgado again. No, we cannot mention it's, Anjanette. Anjanette. It's Anjanette. See, now we're Anjanette. In trouble. Anjanette. Yeah. I mean, I don't care how many singles she's hitting in your, your little softball. She's carrying us, man. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. She's the Ichiro. <laughs> that's great. All right, my man. As usual, that was uh, that was fun. Thanks for uh, letting me join your show. 
I really, I really, I really appreciate that. I will uh, see you soon, I'm sure, in Allen Park or someplace. You're, you don't go to practices anymore. Actually, you, I'll, you I'll be the there. Uh, by the time this comes out, I'll be chilling. But I, I'm, I'm going. Uh, I will have when you're listening to this. I will have been this week, unless uh, I don't know, it starts snowing and I get snowed. I'll bet a dollar you don't go to to Allen Park this week. No, I, yeah, okay. I'll bet you a hundred. I do. <gasps> No, don't take that bet. Oh, I, I don't make good that kind of money. Sorry. Because I, yeah, I, I have to go. All right. Uh, who do we want to thank? We want to thank Andrew Hammond, even though he's not secure in the guests we want. But he does do a great job producing this show every week. Right, Carlos? He just bleeps out all your uh, bad words. Yeah, I'm sure. We want to thank, uh, we definitely want to thank him for making this possible in all seriousness. We, we do want to thank Anjanette. Delgado for the, being an executive producer. Um, also, Kirkland Crawford, the sports editor and co-executive producer. And, of course, Peter Batia. Peter Batia, the editor of the Free Press. Who else do we want to thank, Carlos? Is that it? Um, I think Are they going to keep adding names? What are we doing? <laughs> Got to thank Apple and Spotify for letting us uh, have our podcast on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, you can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast. As you mentioned, Apple, Spotify. You can rate uh, our show, you can subscribe. That would be great. And uh, tell us what you think. Hey, Carlos, do we need to thank anybody else before we go? Mm, not this week. Not Solari and Graham Couch, that's for sure. No, we're not going to thank them at all. Thanks, uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for ditching us. And uh, I think that's it, though, Carlos. So I think we've dragged this ending on as long as we possibly You can. said it was going to be short and you're dragging it on. Oh, I know. It's my fault. In any case, all right, my man, it was a pleasure. Thank you all for listening. We will be back next week.